At the outset of their mission to the Lamanites, Ammon and his brothers were promised protection, success, and eternal life. Along with all of those, they find epic adventure as well. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for Gospel Doctrine again, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Alma chapters 17 through 22, I Will Make an Instrument of Thee. Should you care to contact the program, send me an email at gt at And I wanted to put in this week another plug for our website, which is gospeltoctrine.com. If you visit that site, you'll find an episode page for every one of our uh, podcast episodes, which includes a pdf version of my notes and also a transcript of each episode done by Paul. Most of these are done by Paul Castro in Australia. We thank him uh, as often as we can for doing those those transcriptions on a volunteer basis. So today's lesson involves the mission of the Sons of Mosiah to the Lamanites. And I think the most obviously the most memorable episode in this in these six chapters are the first three chapters which deal with Ammon and his appearance in front of King Lamoni and his adventures while tending the flocks of the king. So I think all of you know the story. I'll, I'll relate the events of it sort of briefly, and then we'll talk about some of the significance. So uh, this story begins as a flashback. This entire section talking about the, the sons of Mosiah among the Lamanites is a flashback that begins when Alma, traveling south to the land of Manti, and there's a lot about uh, geography in this in this lesson that we probably just won't get into. Um, there might there may be a time when I deal with the geography of the Book of Mormon, but it's so hard to do in a non-visual way. Uh, but this is the lesson, chapter 22. In fact, our final chapter today is the chapter that that deals with a lot of the geography of the lands of the Lamanites. Any in any case, uh, Alma is traveling to the south of Zarahemla, and he runs into the sons of Mosiah returning from their mission. It's been 14 years. So if you recall, it was right around the time when King Mosiah was about to die, and he refused to force one of his sons to serve as king. And they left around the time that the Nephites were instituting the judges. So if you want to know how long the, if you're reading the uh, the account of Alma, and you want to know how long the sons of Mosiah have been on their mission at that point. It's just whatever year it is in the reign of the judges, they've been on their mission about that long. So, for example, when Alma and Amulek are ejected from Ammonihah, and shortly thereafter, the city of Ammonihah is destroyed, it's been 10 years. So, we can time some of these things by that event, for example, when the interactions between the Nephites and the Lamanites, we can know how long it took Ammon and his brothers to do certain things. Uh, so f- next week when we discuss the anti-Nephi Lehi's, we'll know that Ammon and his brother had, had been among the Lamanites for about 10 or 11 years at that point. It's interesting to think, you, you don't quite realize that because the story is related so quickly, you don't quite realize how long everything took to bear fruit. But they, they made a life of it. They, they really wanted this to be, uh, their life's work was converting the Lamanites. They gave up everything for it. I'm not quite sure what that meant uh, for, the, for the sons of Mosiah as far as their family life. Did they take a wife with them? That seems to be uh, not true. That seems not to be the case by all indications. There would have been some mention that, they, that their wives were in too much danger. Uh, They were locked into prison and almost killed. So maybe they took wives from among the Lamanites once they established them as a people and as a church. Or maybe they waited until they got home. We don't really know. We never find out. But Alma runs into his friends, his good friends, his friends in iniquity before his conversion, and then his friends in the Lord after his conversion. They shared that episode where Alma was uh, had an angel appear to him and was... I don't want to say knocked unconscious, but was astonished to the point of unconsciousness uh, as a result of that vision. And they were all converted on the same occasion, and they all seemed to have remained just as faithful. And 
the first tale we have about uh, missionary journeys and missionary successes is that of Ammon. So Ammon and his brothers, and here we are in the flashback in chapter 17, Ammon and his brothers arrive at the border of the lands of the Lamanites and the lands of the Nephites. Now, just to draw a parallel in your mind, remember that it wasn't, it has only been one generation that a lot of the Nephites have, have returned from this exact same land. So when we talk about the land of Shilom, the land of Nephi. This was the very same place where the civilization of Zenith, of the wicked King Noah, and of King Limhi had their cities. They had a couple of cities in the land of the Lamanites, and they were surrounded by Lamanites. And so now we learn, as we learn about a little bit more about their geography, we learn a couple of things. Number one, they were right in the middle of the land of the Nephites, or I'm sorry, the land of the Lamanites. And number two, it doesn't appear that the land of the Lamanites is as extensive as you might imagine, uh, knowing the size of North and South America that they had to spread out in. Uh, we can find that they really could travel all of their lands within just a, just a short matter of a few days or weeks, even with a large number of people, even with the whole uh, population behind them. As, as we discover next week when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's emigrate, uh, they, and, and if you remember when... Limhi and his people returned to Zarahemla. They only traveled for a couple of weeks. And so this isn't a huge kingdom. That's one of the things that stuck with me. Uh, also, a place that is mentioned in uh, this week's lesson that comes from the story of the wicked King Noah is Mormon. So the place of Mormon is where Alma first resorted to in the wilderness and baptized everyone, Alma the Elder. And the city of Jerusalem, it's a city established by the Lamanites, named after, obviously, Jerusalem, uh, the land of their fathers. The city of Jerusalem is close to the place of Mormon. And so I guess the point I'm making with all of this is it's, it's sort of wonderful now that we can have opened up to our narrative a lot more details about Lamanite society. We learn about their geography. We learn about a little bit about their religion. We learn about their politics, and we learn about their social norms. Uh, all in these few chapters. And that is a very fascinating set of details. And it's thanks to Ammon and his, the willingness of Ammon and his brethren to risk their lives to serve their enemies that we learn all of these things. The first thing that happens is we, the story follows Ammon. He's sort of the star of the show. And he's also appears to be the priesthood leader of this group of missionaries, even though he's not the oldest son of King Mosiah, the old King Mosiah, that was Aaron. And Aaron had the right to the kingship, to the crown, if he wanted it, but he turned it down. Nevertheless, Ammon seems to be the one that is the leader of this group. And he's the one who has the first great success in a missionary sense as well. He makes his way to the land of Ishmael. Now, again, we're going to bring up the tribes of the, the people of Lehi, the, the people of Lehi are divided into seven tribes, three of them among the Lamanites, the tribe of Laman, Lemuel, and of Ishmael. So it seems likely that because this land is named Ishmael, these are all Ishmaelites. Even though they're generally included under the broader term of Lamanites, when, they, when they're among themselves, they probably point to their genealogy and their ancestor of Ishmael rather than of Laman or Lemuel. That, that much seems clear. And why, is, why does this matter? Well, during this week's lesson, we become aware of some apostate groups that exist among the Lamanites, and they generally originate as defectors from the Nephites. However, these groups of defectors seem to find a stronger toehold with different groups of the Lamanites. And so the Ishmaelites seem to have remained, uh, shall we say, an untainted group of of descendants of their original father. In other words, uh, they haven't had introduced among them these apostate religions of the Nephites, and that ends up being a very important factor in their conversions. So Ammon makes his way into the land of Ishmael and is immediately taken prisoner, and they bring him before the king as they do with all Nephite prisoners. Apparently this happens from time to time, perhaps, and the king generally is going to kill them. Now this king you might even describe him as bloodthirsty, and we're going to find out why. But his name is Lamoni, and he is so impressed by the answers that Ammon gives to his questions that he sets him at liberty. So he first asks him, how long will you stay here? And he says, what are you doing here? And Ammon says, I want to be your servant, and I might stay here for the rest of my life. 
So I want to serve the people of Ishmael. I want to be one of you. I want to come and be among you. And generally, I imagine the answer to the question in the past has been, I'm here to scout out things for a military purpose or some other adversarial reason to be in the land of Ishmael. And this is maybe the first time that Lamoni has even heard of where a Nephite comes and wants to dwell among them. From what we can tell in this lesson, the Lamanites seem to recognize that their society is less blessed, is less prosperous than that of Nephite society. Well, King Lamoni offers Ammon the, his, his daughter's hand in marriage. He's so impressed by his answers. He feels like this, there's something different about this Nephite. But Ammon doesn't want that kind of honor bestowed on him. What he wants to do is put himself in a, condition, in a position to put the king into his debt. At least I believe that's what was on his mind. And so he's given the task of tending the flocks of the king. A side note about flocks. Uh, we don't have any record in the archaeological record of the sheep living in the, uh, in the new world in ancient times. So the flocks of the king, what animals did they consist of? Now there is a possibility. We have a record in the Book of Mormon that Lehi and his family, they brought their flocks and herds with them on their ship. So it is possible that they brought sheep with them and these sheep are descended from those. It's also possible that the Book of Mormon doesn't mention sheep in this instance because the flocks that they were tending were flocks of some animal that was present in the New World. Now, the New World does have some indigenous sheep, but they're generally bighorn sheep. And there is no evidence anywhere of them having been domesticated, uh, which is an interesting fact. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. And also, it could be that they were some other animal that has been domesticated, for example, llamas or alpacas. And that, that makes for a little bit of a different uh, scene in your, in your imagination for what happens with Ammon than it, than, it does, than it has in the past, perhaps. So perhaps you've always imagined that there are a bunch of sheep there and then uh, to swap, mentally swap those animals out for llamas uh, might <laughs> present a little bit of a surprise. I don't know that that's the case, but it does seem more likely. It does seem more logical. So... Ammon is given the task of tending and watering the king's flocks, and they go to the place of water. And at this place, there are some rustlers, and that's the modern name. They're men who scatter the flock in order to later on gather up animals that don't belong to them and take possession. This is such a serious crime that in the, uh, let's say, the, the 19th century America, it was punishable by death. Rustling was a crime that was uh, met with capital punishment. So, obviously, we don't know the criminal punishment for rustling at the time of Ammon, but we do know that these men, they acted like criminals in the, in the sense that they didn't want to leave any witnesses behind of their crimes. So, the, in the first case, what they did was they scattered the flocks. And the, immediately what begins is Ammon's fellow servants, they're lamenting their fate. Oh no, King Lamona, he's killed all of the, our, our brethren who've done this in the past. When they come back without the flocks, then he, he puts them to death. He executes them for losing his flocks. And Ammon says, look, let's not give up, guys. This barely happened. Let's go gather the flocks again and bring them back. And they do. So by virtue of a positive attitude, they reverse their situation and bring the flock, flocks back to the state they were before, which is gathered and by the water. They've However, they've hardly managed at all to solve their problem, which is that the, there seems to be a vicious mob who wants to take away the flocks. And when they see that they've gathered them back up again, they come and attack again. So now we get to the meat of the story. And this is the adventure part of the story, which is where Ammon says, look, you guys watch over the flocks and I will go and contend with these bandits. Uh, if <laughs> having grown up in Las Vegas, I remember a, a, a sign in church one week. It said, Ammon encountered the one-armed bandits. And uh, it, you may imagine that growing up in Las Vegas was different in a lot of ways than growing up in other places. And one way is that we knew as children that one-armed bandits were, were slot machines. And so that was sort of a funny joke. So uh, he does end up cutting off the arms of several of these bandits, and they end up as one-armed bandits. But uh, so little side note there doesn't really have to do with the story. So Ammon, 
He goes out to contend with these men, and I've always imagined that there were just a few of them, but it says not a few. We don't know the numbers of these men, but we do have some clues. First thing that we know is that Ammon used his sling. I did a little research on slings and what kind of a weapon, how effective a weapon they are, and how far away they can be accurate. It seems like modern scholars vary widely on how far they believe a sling can be an accurate weapon. But one thing I learned was that the projectile that is inside a sling is called a bullet. And we have evidence, archaeological evidence, of sling bullets that were made of lead as long ago as four or 500 BC, and then other metals and, and alloys of lead many hundreds of years before that. So long before the time of Ammon, it was a common practice to cast uh, sling projectiles out of metal. So it may have been that he was slinging stones at them, and it may also have been that he was throwing projectiles at him that he had prepared. Now later on we will learn that Ammon had three days before he went out to, the, uh, to, to, to water the flocks to the place of water. And so it may be that he heard about what a dangerous job this was, that you could go out there, lose the flocks, and come back and be executed. And so then he had, a t- he had time to prepare himself. Everything in this story uh, leads us to believe that Ammon was a very accomplished military man. So here's the first indication that we have. There are probably, and, and I'll give you the, my reasons for concluding this, there are probably up to 20 or perhaps even more men attacking him. Now, because we live in a modern media culture, we, we may not realize just how surprising, how shocking this is that one man could withstand 20 men, uh, a mob of men, anything like 20, anything approaching 20, even more than a dozen, would just be unthinkable. Um, and so I think it would behoove all of us to just imagine yourself surrounded by even a group of three people who are intent on killing you or beating you down. Even even two people attacking me, I imagine I would be hard-pressed to defend myself unless I got some sort of advantage upon them very early. And so Ammon tries to do this, but nevertheless, he at one point had to have been surrounded by vigorous and determined and hostile and angry enemies, all intent on his destruction. And not only did he survive the encounter, but he sent them running. It's just an amazing story. Uh, In fact, the story might be so amazing that there may be some embellishment to it. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, there are some indications of that. We'll We'll go through that. So the first thing that that Ammon does is he kills six of them with a sling. So one estimate we have of a sling's effective range is maybe about 50 yards or uh, 45 meters, something like that. So if you can imagine that you have the amount of time that it takes a bunch of men to run 45 meters towards you, you have that much time to launch six projectiles, and you're hit, you, you, are killing, you are hitting six moving targets with such force as to kill them. And what that means about Ammon is, number one, he has nerves of steel. He, he doesn't flinch even though they're running towards him at full speed. And number two, he, he can't have missed a single shot. He must have hit every single thing he was aiming at. So I looked up some videos of sling throwers, and granted, we don't live in a sling society. We don't learn anything like, we, we don't do anything like teaching our children to uh, use a sling at a, at a young age. But slings are powerful weapons, and especially if they have uh, a heavy projectile, they can be deadly, and they can be deadly at that range but he must have hit every single person. And then he has time to draw his sword and he kills their leader with this sword. Now, maybe what happened was the first time the flocks were scattered, Ammon, this is just me imagining what, what might have been the sequence of events. I don't, this isn't in the scriptural record. But I'm imagining that, that Ammon is an accomplished military man. It's really the only way that you can explain everything that he goes through this day. And so maybe the first time, maybe number one, he was prepared for this conflict. And number two, the first time they came through and scattered the flocks, he was observing them for weaknesses. And he might have thought to himself, this guy's the leader. If I don't take him out, I'm never going to be victorious. Everyone else here seems to be a bully or a coward. So it may have been that he was forming a plan on how to defeat them later on. 
in any case, he slays the, the leader with his sword, and the, the record records that he's, that's the only man that he slays with the sword. Everyone else, he just cuts off their arms. But if they, if they had no problem counting to six, that's the number of men he slew with his sling, then it seems like the number of arms he cut off must have been greater than six. And it must have been a lot greater because otherwise they would have just given us the number. It must have been more than someone could count just by looking at them. And so that leads me to believe there were at least twice as many. So seven people that he killed, six with the sling, one with the sword, maybe another, maybe another 14, maybe another 13 or 14 or, or so with the, uh, that he cut off the arms of. And then there were some left over to run away. So this is very interesting. This is That, to me, adds up to around 20 or, or maybe a little bit more. And a mob of 20 attacking you, armed with slings. And they were, uh, if, you, if you read carefully, they were throwing stones at Ammon as well. They're armed with slings and clubs and bad attitudes. And he sends them running. You cannot see this encounter as anything but miraculous. 20 people against one man. That, that is my estimate of how, uh, of how many men that he, how many bandits that he drove off. So it's no wonder that when they return, that King Lamoni, when he hears the tale of what Ammon has accomplished, he feels like Ammon is God himself. Who ever heard of, tw- of one man driving away 20? It's impossible. Now, it may be that this episode wasn't recorded right away, and so therefore some of it as the legend of Ammon grew, we know that Ammon became quite an important person among these Ishmaelites, among the Lamanites. And it may be that as that legend grew, some of the details got embellished. And it may be that Ammon wasn't the one who recorded the story. And therefore, uh, this, this was sort of like the tale of any legendary figure. It became larger than life. And as the years passed, the numbers grew larger. Uh, and it also may be that it's entirely accurate and that this was, that God can do anything and that this was a miraculous event in the course of Ammon's life, and, and I don't have any problem believing that either. However, one thing that we read is that when Ammon comes, he returns into the presence of the king. Now, the first thing he does is he goes out and he tends the horses of the king. So the king had been planning on going on a journey, and so he'd given orders that after you water the flocks, then tend my horses. And so Ammon, he didn't regard it as any sort of special occasion where he gets out of his duties, uh, just because he's managed to defend the flocks, he comes back from watering the flocks and then goes to do his next job. The king was totally blown away by this. He was very impressed again. So first he was impressed with Ammon's answers to his questions, and now he's impressed with Ammon's military prowess and with his exact obedience. So all of these things sort of lead up to what's coming, which is the king is being put in a position to be very prepared to hear whatever Ammon might say. And Ammon comes in and says, uh, King, would you? what do you desire of me? And the king doesn't answer him. Now, one of the details that we find in verse 14 of chapter 18, we've now gone from chapter 17 to chapter 18, which is the account of Ammon's interview in front of King Lamoni. And in verse 14, the king doesn't answer him for the space of an hour. Now, that to me, I tried to imagine that happening, uh, where someone asks a question, nobody's been prepared, like, look, I want you to be quiet for an hour. Uh, this just spontaneously occurs. I challenge any of my listeners to find an occasion in your lives where you ask somebody a question, and then uh, nobody answers, nobody asks a follow-up question, nobody leaves the room, everyone just sits there and looks at each other for an hour. This, this seems very unlikely. This seems, this seems like a strange occurrence. Now, that doesn't mean that it's impossible, but um, in this particular case, now, God could have been on the side of Ammon, and it could have been that he was helping him to overcome all of these 20 enemies, and therefore it's a miraculous occurrence. In this occasion, it doesn't seem like God would help everyone to be quiet for an hour. And so that leads me to believe that there is some embellishment going on, because uh, an hour is a long time for everyone to just sit and be silent. So in any case, the uh, the king eventually says, Ammon is about to withdraw, and one of the servants says, the king has a question of thee. And at this point, Ammon gets a spiritual prompting that the king is feeling intimidated about what Ammon has accomplished. 
So Ammon begins his missionary discussion with the king, and he asks the king at the start, he says, Is, are, are you willing to believe the things that I say? And the king says, Yes, I will believe all of your words. And in verse 23 it says, And thus the king was caught with guile. The word guile is used. So I wanted to point this out because if you read this account, really Ammon is not guilty of any sort of guile. He says right up front, King, I, I want to tell you some, some teachings, and I'm wondering if you'll be willing to listen. And the king says, yes, I'll believe all of your words. Now, the, the Lord, often in dealing with us, when he gives us a commandment or gives us a covenant, and he presents this covenant to us, the way that it quite often works is that we don't understand until we reach that point. We don't understand at the time of making the covenant everything that will be involved. I don't know anyone who would say, yes, when I got married, I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew exactly how easy it was going to be, how hard it was going to be, how great it was going to be, and the difficulties I would go through. Everyone says, no, there, was a, there were a lot of eye-opening experiences for me along the way. Uh, similar with a lot of covenants, with uh, certainly with the covenants of the temple, but also with the simple early covenant of baptism. We all have a lot to learn on the day that we make the covenant. And I would never accuse the Lord of having caught me with guile. I would just say that that's the, the way the Lord works is by me having to learn line upon line, precept on precept. So I think the word guile here is used for lack of a better word. It's really that the king was willing to agree to something before he quite knew what he was getting into. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, one thing that always stood out to me uh, in this, I, I read this account many times as a missionary. And one thing that always stood out to me was that Ammon teaches, in order to create a need in the king, Ammon teaches about the fall. And we find this pattern repeated over and over again in the scriptures. Whenever there's a missionary experience, the missionary begins with an account of Adam and Eve. And this isn't just because they want to take things chronologically. It's because the three crowning events, the three defining events of the plan of redemption are the creation, the fall, and the atonement. We'll find this same pattern uh, duplicated again later in today's lesson, but the point I wanted to bring up is that when you are trying to get someone to change, you have to create a need to learn before you can actually teach. And so what talking about the fall accomplishes is creating this need, this this desire to understand, I'm in trouble. You've just described to me why I'm in a fallen world and why I need a Savior. And now you're going to meet that need by talking about Jesus Christ. I think we've lost some of that in our modern world because we've lost, the, let, me, um, let me put it another way. Satan, if he can, will attack the, the pillars, the foundation of the plan of redemption in any way that he knows how. And so those three pillars, the creation, the fall, and the atonement, if you think about what the world thinks of those, those defining events, then you'll understand what I mean. First of all, the, the creation. What is the modern opinion about the creation of the world and God as creator, God's role as creator? It is that it probably didn't happen like we think. It wasn't miraculous. It was a bunch of uh, happen, haphazard, random events that, fortunately for us, ended up with us existing. And God, if he was part of it at all, uh, existed as an observer. And so by these natural processes, the earth came into being. And by natural and random processes, the, the first life existed on earth. And life progressed from the simple into the more complex and eventually gave birth to man through no intervention of any conscious entity. No agency existed outside of creation to direct it in any way. This is, by and large, the modern scientific consensus for how we came about. How about the fall? Well, those who even bother to address the issue call the episode of the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden with God and Satan, uh, a metaphor. It's, it is a story that is designed to teach a, a philosophical truth. It is full of archetypes. In other words, uh, it is full of deep and common philosophical urges, and those urges being enacted in a way that is in a predictable story that seems to be 
repeated in various ways throughout history. That's what an archetype is. It's something that's common and universal. And so the, the story of Adam and Eve is seen as just that. It's a story that teaches us something about human nature. But it doesn't actually relate anything about people who really lived ever. So that's the modern understanding of Adam and Eve, that they're literary figures, and the, the first chapters of Genesis are pure fiction. And so then the atonement. If you, if you talk to a historian or a scholar, the general consensus today among the scientific community, the literary, the humanities community, is that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, But was he the Son of God? Of course not. Did he die for our sins? Did he suffer for us? Was he resurrected? No, these were interpretations, these were claims made by his followers in order to create a religion and gain power. And incidentally, if you've already undermined your understanding of the creation and the fall, why do you need Jesus Christ to be a Savior? Why do you need there to be an atonement that pays for the sins of all of us. And so this is the state of modern philosophy on the creation, the fall, and the atonement. And it's important for us to remember that this was not always the case. And when Ammon goes about the task of turning a nation of unbelievers into a nation of believers, he has to build on these three pillars, he has to build his foundation. So he teaches them about the creation, he teaches them about the fall, and then the need is created for them to learn about the atonement. And the the experience is so powerful that King Lamoni is overwhelmed. He, he is so overwhelmed by the idea that God loves him enough to redeem him from the fall that he sinks to the earth and falls unconscious. Now, Ammon is familiar with this phenomenon because he lived through it. He witnessed it happen to Alma, and when Alma awoke three days later, he was a changed man. He awoke and said, I have seen my Redeemer, I've been converted of God, and immediately began to preach and to administer to those who, were, who had surrounded him. So Ammon has confidence, I believe, that... King Lamoni will be just fine. Everyone else, except for his wife, thinks King Lamoni is dead. But the queen asks Ammon for his help, and so he does. He, he brings King Lamoni back to consciousness, and the king says, I've seen my redeemer. The king has become a prophet, basically. He says, I know that God will redeem all of my people, and that he has a great work for me to accomplish in helping Ammon to establish a church here in the land of Ishmael. And the queen is overcome. Ammon is overcome, the servants are all overcome, and the king is again overcome, and they all sink back into unconsciousness. There's one person left conscious, and this is perhaps because she was converted and was used to feeling the spirit, or perhaps it's because she chose to remain conscious. We don't know exactly. Interestingly enough, she's one of only three women who have names in the Book of Mormon. This is Avish, the servant of King Lamoni, and she, oddly enough has been converted to the religion of of Jesus Christ, of Jehovah, for many years. And so we, as a side note, we can sort of wonder, what must her life have been like all of this time, living among the Lamanites and hiding her beliefs and perhaps praying for this day to come? Uh, But she is ready to grasp the opportunity to convert her countrymen to the worship of God. And so she runs out to get an audience for what's going on, perhaps without thinking it through, Uh, in great detail, because when people start to assemble, they suspect Ammon of some foul play. And I think, you know, understandably so, here's this Nephite, the traditional and hereditary enemy of the Lamanites, lying among a bunch of uh, apparently dead Lamanites. And so, of course, they're upset. One of them is more upset than the others. He's the brother of the man that Ammon slew with the sword, and he decides he's going to get his revenge on Ammon. And unfortunately for him, God had promised to look after Ammon. So Ammon is unconscious, and he is utterly defenseless, except that the the God of Abraham is watching over him. So as this man raises his sword to slay Ammon, he falls down dead. At that point, Ammon's safety is guaranteed. Nobody's going to disturb him further. They all sit and wait and watch to find out what will happen. But eventually, Abish grabs the queen's hand, and she's, she, come, she immediately wakes up, which makes me ask the question, uh, if, you read these, if you read these accounts of people uh, falling unconscious and then being uh, brought to consciousness by somebody grabbing their hand, you think, uh, that seems like a pretty obvious thing to try. I wonder why they didn't 
everyone and didn't try that first and then conclude they were dead. But maybe maybe uh, earlier attempts are missing from the record. In any case, the queen gets up, and then and then the king gets up, and then Ammon gets up, and they all begin to preach and testify of what they've seen. Now, there are those who refuse to accept what the king is saying, but for the most part, the entire nation is at least, uh, at least begun to be converted on that very day, and a church is established among them. Now, one of the things that uh, we skipped over is that the king, the reason that Ammon was working on the horses of the king was that the king was going to depart. He was due for a feast with his father, who seems to be uh, a king of kings over all of the lands of the Lamanites. And Lamoni was due to celebrate with him. Now, uh, as we'll learn, I'll I'll give you some more uh, evidence for this as we go on, but I believe that this is setting up an explanation of Lamanite society as a feudal form of government, which means that uh, if you if you think about medieval Europe, there was a king, and then he had his nobles, his dukes, his earls, and his barons, who had various levels of land that was assigned to them, and they controlled it. And then at the bottom of this social strata were the serfs, and they worked the land, they provided the labor. And the, the king, and then by extension his nobles, they had ultimate authority over whatever would happen. They, they administered the law, and they also had religious authority. And in exchange, as you went up the chain of this authority, you uh, you had to provide, if you were below, you had to provide tribute or taxes to the people above you. And if you were above, you had to provide pr- protection to the people below you. This is a feudal form of government. And as part of this, the nobles, that it seems, or, or the vassals, they're called vassals in, uh, in general, they had to provide evidence of fealty to their rulers from time to time. And so this is my guess that this feast was intended to be a renewal of the proof of Lamoni's loyalty to his father. If you show up at this yearly festival or this feast, then I know that you have dedicated yourself to my rule for yet another year. And if you're ever late, then I'm going to suspect that you're starting to rebel against my rule. And so, uh, King Lamoni says to Ammon, look, come with me to my father so you can you can show him, number one, show him the doctrines of the priesthood that you've shown me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the fall and of the creation, the plan of redemption. And number two, I need to give him an explanation as to why I'm late. I don't want him to think that I'm rebelling against him. Well, Ammon has a revelation. He has an inspiration that his brothers are in prison somewhere else. And he says to King Lamoni, look, I'm not going to be able to go with you. I've got to go save my brethren. They're in prison. And it's uh, a mark of the depth of King Lamoni's conversion that he says, okay, I'm going to abandon my plan to quiet things down with my father, and I'm going to come with you so that I can help you free your brothers, because you're going to have a difficult time of it as a Nephite. You're going to be starting from zero again. And if I come with you, then at least we can have a chance of getting them out of prison right away. Uh, coincidentally, as they're traveling, the king, uh, the father of King Lamoni, whose name we never learn, I suspect his name is Laman, but uh, that's that's because of other indications we have in the Book of Mormon. Uh, but anyway, we'll call him just the father of King Lamoni. Uh, they encounter him on the road. Now, this leads me to, and he was coming to find out, why didn't you come to this feast? The fact that he was willing, he, that he was interested enough in Lamoni's absence to come and find out why, a a journey of several days, leads me to believe there was more going on than just he missed his son. He's worried about his son. He's worried about a vassal ruler in a state, being in a state of insurrection. And it seems that everything in their early conversation seems to give credence to that view. So the first thing that, uh, that King Lamoni's father notices is that his son is with a Nephite. And so his fears are immediately heightened. And then he says, look, why didn't you come to this feast? And he says, well, I was with this Nephite. He was teaching me this. Look, he's got all these new things for us to to study. And King Lamoni says, okay, now you've just confirmed my worst fears. I know now that you consider yourself to be free of my rule, and he's going to kill King Lamoni. So Ammon steps up. Again, Ammon, the military man, Ammon is obviously a warrior. And he says, no, you're not going to kill your son. Look, number one, if you did kill him, he'd be better off than you because even though he'd be dead, he's in a state of righteousness. And you, 
you're in a state of anger and sin, and you need to repent before you can kill anyone or before you can die, because you might be cast off forever. As we'll find out later, these words echo through the king's mind. But at that time, he then changes the focus of his anger from Lamoni to Ammon. He sees, I'm never going to get my son back, as long as this evil Nephite is exerting his influence over him. So the king, the father of King Lamoni, turns his focus to Ammon, and then he says, I'm going to, you're right, I've got to kill you, not my son. Well, Ammon has no trouble in disarming the king and in disabling him. He, he smites his arm. Now, when we think of smite, we think of hit with a blunt object, but it could be that he sliced his arm open, or it could be that he hit it with the flat of his sword. We don't know which. In any case, it doesn't seem like he seriously wounded uh, the king enough that he was in danger of his life. However, he's disarmed, and he's totally at Ammon's mercy. The fact that Ammon shows mercy in this case And when offered his choice of rewards for sparing the king's life, he chooses only that he may be allowed to pass freely and that his his friend, King Lamoni, be given his own autonomy from that day forth. Impresses the king. Because in our our day, we would think, well, the king isn't going to honor a promise that he gives under duress, right? We we, we have this cultural convention that anything that is promised under duress is non-binding. But in ancient times, a promise made under duress was totally binding. That is how you made most of your promises. If somebody wanted to get something from you, all they had to do was get the drop on you. And, and when their sword is raised over your head, you'll promise anything and you better keep it or they'll do it or they'll bring their sword again. And so he fully intended to be giving away half of his kingdom when he made this promise. And the fact that Ammon doesn't want it is just so surprising to him. And he's And my guess is he's also familiar with the event of Nephites coming into the Lamanites' lands and taking over part of them and forcing the king to give up part of the kingdom. We have evidence that the Nephites, when they defect from Nephite society and they become Lamanites, they seem to rise to the top, and it may be because they're willing to conquer through violence. So Ammon has proven himself to not be one of these Nephite defectors. Instead, he is obviously a friend to King Lamoni and a friend to the the Lamanites in general. And so at this point, the king has, has had a total change of heart. And he says, I will not only decree that you can have your goal of releasing your brethren out of prison, I decree that is already granted, but I'm going to grant my son his autonomy, and I want you to come talk to me when this is all over. Now, that doesn't end up happening. Ammon has too much work to do among the Ishmaelites. So he and and Lamoni, they go and they rescue Aaron and his other brethren. They've been imprisoned. And then they return to Ishmael. And Ammon begins to establish a church there. And he's got a lot of work to do. He can't leave those people neglected. So Aaron now, the oldest son of, of King Mosiah II, has been freed from prison. And now when Ammon encounters Aaron, we get a second layer of flashback. Have you ever watched a movie where uh, you get a flashback as to what's happened to one character, and within the flashback, you have a nested flashback where you go farther back? Well, for a few verses of chapter 21, we're inside of a flashback within a flashback. A very interesting literary device, and one that I'm unaware of elsewhere in Scripture. But first, we're made familiar with the events of Aaron's mission up until that point. And basically, it's the story of rejection after rejection. So Aaron had the bad luck of traveling among the lands of the Amalekites. Now, in case you're not familiar with that name, don't blame yourself because this is the first time we're hearing about the Amalekites. And I've always wondered because the Amalekites will now figure in the book of Alma for some time to come. They are the most wicked part and the most angry part of all of the Lamanites, and we don't quite understand why. Where did they get all this anger from? Where did the Amalekites even come from? So if you look up the name Amalekai, you find that there was one Amalekai who was one of the writers of the small plates of, of Nephi. And, uh, and he seems to have been a righteous man, so that d- doesn't really give us a whole lot of reason to think that he was the first Amalekite. And then there's another Amalekai who was among the people that went to the Lamanites uh, to establish the kingdom of King Zenith. But he seems to have been a righteous man as well, in spite of the fact that they lived in the land of the Lamanites. 
It doesn't seem like he would have established a people among them. So where did the Amalekites come from? Usually when Mormon has a new concept, a new person, a new place, a new people to introduce, he explains where they come from the first time we run into them. In this case, however, we get no introduction. We just hear that, uh, first, first of all, that Aaron goes among the Amalekites and is rejected. And secondly, that they are the profession of the Nehors, which is a lame, I'm sorry, which is a Nephite religion. So number one, where did the Amalekites come from? And number two, how did they become Nehors? Well, an interesting uh, fact about the Hebrew language might help us with an answer. You may be aware that in Hebrew, the vowels are missing from its written form, the ancient written form. Now, modern Hebrew has a, um, some, a, a system of diacritical marks, the dots and, and lines that can be inserted around the letters that add vowel sounds. But ancient Hebrew didn't have such marks, and therefore the vowels were understood only by context. Now, it may have been by this time that the Nephites and the Lamanites were not using Hebrew as their main language, uh, and it may not. We don't know 100% for sure. We know that the Book of Mormon, the, the Record of Mormon, continued to be written in, he, in Hebrew in the characters of Reformed Egyptian until the time of Mormon, but we don't know their day-to-day -day language. However, that seems to give us some evidence that Hebrew was an influencing language in their culture. Secondly, so I guess if you were to compare the name Amalekai to some other names in the Book of Mormon, one of the names you would come up with was the name Amlicai. Now you remember early on, the first three chapters of the Book of Alma, there's this terrible battle. And it's right after the sons of Mosiah leave the, the land of the Nephites and head out on their mission that Alma is left behind to fight as not only the chief priest and the chief judge, but also the chief general in the armies against the army of the Amlicites. And when they're defeated, the Amlicites go and they join up with an army of Lamanites. And then they're all defeated together and they all run away. And we don't know what happens to them after that. So to put it differently, there's a scholar, a Book of Mormon scholar named Christopher Conkling. And his observation was that one group is introduced as if it will have ongoing importance. The other, that's the Amlicites, the other is first mentioned as if its identity has already been established. That's the Amalekites. Uh, the Book of Mormon scholar Royal Skousen, he made a study of the two manuscripts that we have of the Book of Mormon. They're called the Original Manuscript and the Printer's Manuscript. And they strengthen this suggestion. So the first occurrences of the word Amlicites are spelled with a K. That's interesting because we consider a, a C as having an S sound and a K sound. But in ancient Hebrew, that's not the case. And so if there, were, if there was going to be a hard C sound, it would have been spelled with a K. And in the printer's manuscript, the first occurrences of Amlicites is in fact spelled with a K. And then later on the, uh, in the original manuscript, the earliest references to the Amalekites are spelled with a C. And it's spelled Amelicites, or Amelicites, depending on how you pronounce that C. Which, to me, says that this was a Hebraism that was preserved in the English translation, where the, the vowels were sort of optional. And so there may or may not be a vowel in between this M and this L in Amlicite. Is it Amalekai or is it Amlicite? Well, in Hebrew, those names would be spelled exactly the same way. Now, based on what I've read, I'm convinced, but you, I, I don't think it's mandatory by any means to believe that the Amalekites and the Amlicites are the same people. I just think it explains a lot and makes it a lot easier. And so I, I, like, I like to share that insight with you. So, the, but the Amalekites, the thing we do know about them is that they are of the profession of Nehors. Now, what does Nehor believe? As we discussed last time and a few times before that, they believe that everyone will be saved. There is no need for repentance. There is no need for Christ. In fact, we can't know about things that are going to occur in the future. We also know about the Nehors, that they believe in the popularity of priests. They believe in priestcraft. And so anyone preaching to a population or a congregation of Nehors, number one, they have to contend with the fact that their doctrine opposes the need for repentance. So they're already prepared with a defense against Christianity. But number two, they are going to be going up against a powerful and influential person 
in their congregation, which is the priest who makes his living off of everyone continuing to believe that they don't need to repent. So number one, you're going to be telling a bunch of people who've been taught that everything's fine, that everything's not fine. And number two, you've got the built-in and guaranteed hostility of whoever the priest is over this congregation. And that's the place, that's the people among whom Aaron had the misfortune to end up and to try to teach. So they go from congregation to congregation, but because they're among Amalekites and another group of Nephite dissenters, the Amulonites. Now, you may remember Amulon was the chief of the priests of the wicked King Noah. And these are the priests who ran off into the wilderness. They grabbed a bunch of daughters of the Lamanites. They established their own civilization in the land of Helam, which was where Alma the Elder had established his people. They took over their city. So the Amulonites became part of the Lamanites. And so here we have these two groups of Nephite dissenters who have totally perverted the religion and the culture of the Lamanites. The the Lamanites, as wicked as they were, as we can see, they weren't resistant to the idea of learning about Jesus Christ and repenting. But only when they had been reinforced by a satanic religion that had prepared their minds to resist the truth, only then was conversion impossible for them. So because of this, Aaron ends up in prison. And when he's freed, he goes, the spirit leads him to go talk to the king, the father of King Lamoni. And in this encounter, he has a very similar experience with that king that Ammon had with King Lamoni, which is that the king is overwhelmed by the spirit when he hears about the plan of salvation. Again, Aaron begins, as Ammon did, with the fall and talking about he establishes the pillars of the plan of salvation, the creation, the fall, and the atonement. And the king is so overcome that he offers this amazing prayer. He says, God, if thou art God, let me know that I can that I can repent, that I can be acceptable unto you. I will give up all my sins to know you. And at that moment, he is overcome by emotion, by the spirit, and he falls unconscious. Now again, Aaron is at first in danger when the king falls unconscious because everyone suspects him of foul play, everyone that wasn't initially present at the time of that event. But it is quickly enough resolved. And so the, the king issues a proclamation of religious liberty. And this is what King Lamoni did as well. All of, I've, I've decided, I the king have decided to adopt a new religion that I believe in what these missionaries are teaching. I've decided that I believe that God created the world and that he then sent a savior to save us all from our sins. But I'm going to allow all of you to believe as you want. It seems like one of the hallmarks of a prophet-led religion is that wherever it gains power, it seeks to establish religious liberty. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to make the choice to believe in the presence of some other option, in the presence of the choice not to believe. This is actually the the most valuable prize that God has, is good choices on the part of his children. And so he has to create liberty so that we can make choices. If we have constrictions and constraints, and we have a lack of freedom, then we can't give God what he wants most in all the universe, which is our moral agency directed voluntarily in his path. So Aaron helps the king and they establish this again. So in the land of Ishmael, Ammon has established with the king Lamoni a church which will eventually include almost every inhabitant of that land. And in the land of Nephi, the the king over all of the of the Lamanites has done the same thing with Aaron. They've established another church. And the only place that it doesn't have overwhelming success is wherever the predominant population, the predominant religion, is uh, controlled by the Amalekites or the Amulonites. Now, even though it didn't, hasn't taken us very long to relate this story, as we find out later, the the timeline is perhaps around at least eight years by this point, maybe even longer, because pretty soon some hostilities are going to break out and it's going to spill over into the land of the Nephites, and then we can put a date on it. And the date is 11 years from the time that they went on their mission. So it has taken years for Ammon and Aaron and their respective kings to get to this point 
We don't actually know how long it took them to to create these churches, to establish them, to convert the kings, but it is not as quickly as it might seem by just the relation of a few simple episodes. So now if you're a little confused about the relation between the land of Ishmael and the land of Nephi and how it relates to where the Nephites actually live, uh, you'll have to go online and search for the Nephite geography and Lamanite geography. Uh, But in this chapter, in chapter 22, is where it's made clear. And in addition, we get a lot of information from the book of Mosiah, the, the travel of the the people that followed King Zenith into the land of Nephi and then came back. We get a lot of information from their accounts of traveling from the land of Shilom to the land of Nephi to the land of Zarahemla and how long it took them and what direction they went. Uh, We actually have a fair amount of information about the geography. And again, the thing that impressed me was uh, it's not so spread out as you might think. They didn't cover the entire continent of South America. They seem to have remained limited to a small geographical area. Even the, even the Nephites, they could have just picked up their whole society and traveled for three months in one direction and never seen another Lamanite as long as they lived, but they didn't do that for whatever reason. So going back over the lesson, the thing that impresses me the most, and, I, and it's repeated twice, I think for a reason, which is so that we can find some common elements in the two stories, and then it might be able to penetrate our minds and the importance of it can be impressed upon our minds, which is this, that when you want to convert someone, and that someone could be yourself, you have to create a need to learn at the same time that you're teaching about Jesus Christ. You don't just come in and say, Jesus Christ is your Savior. You say, look, God has created everything. He is the Great Spirit. He created everything, and there was a fall. We exist in a fallen world. We have a period of a probationary state that is limited. It is the time will eventually have an end. And so you and I are lost. We live in this precarious position where we could be consigned to a terrible fate forever. And God, knowing this, he sent angels to reveal a way that we can escape it. And the Savior is the way. So the plan of salvation has built within it both the need to learn and the satisfaction of that need. Now, I always wished that I could fall unconscious and have a visit have a vision of Jesus the way that both of these kings did. In fact, uh, I remember reading this verse when I was a younger man and repeating in my mind the words that, that uh, the father of King Lamoni said, I'll give away all my sins to know thee, Lord, help me. You know, And I, what I wanted was for God to knock me unconscious and to have three days worth of visions. And uh, I was disappointed that it didn't happen. <laughs> and so reading this now, I, and in many, many times since then, uh, I understand that the difference is this. Number one, this king had never been exposed to any of these doctrines before. So when he heard them uh, from the mouth of Ammon and then from the mouth of Aaron, they were truly surprising and truly astonishing. Number two, there is no denying that this king's prayer was true, both of these kings, that their prayers were truly sincere, that they fully intended to leave behind every sinful act that they had had, every sinful thought that they'd had. They were willing to leave it all behind. This this depth of conversion is truly miraculous. And number three, it seems like it is in line with the will of God that these two kings be not only converted, but called as prophets, that he had to appear to them because they were going to be in a very short time, they had to change the entire nature of their people from a disbelieving people to a believing one. And in order to do that, they had to be led by inspired kings. So rather than aspire to the kind of vision that King Lamoni and his father had, I believe that it is incumbent upon us to recognize what it was that converted them and then recognize what it was that kept some of the Lamanites from being converted. So today in our world, We see a resistance, we see a destruction, we see a perversion of the doctrines of the creation, of the fall, and of the atonement. And if we want to protect our own conversion with the same enthusiasm that these Lamanite kings embraced theirs, then we will recognize these doctrines as central to our relationship with God. And any pollution of them, we have to recognize it as Satan's effort to try to create a wedge to try to create an apostasy within us that will then be impervious to the Spirit. And so let us embrace the the creation, the fall, and the atonement as the wonderful evidences they are of the plan of our eternal God. 
and the guidance of a loving Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.